I tell writers too is like it's we're not doing brain surgery here no one's life is at stake it's not like we can just try things and then try again and if we can really do our work with that to really really try to embrace that like I actually think the work will be more exciting it will end up better because we'll be less like tight and buttoned up and afraid Welcome to the book I had to write. I'm Paul Zakshevsky. This is the show where I feature critically acclaimed writers who tell me all about the stories they just had to get out into the world. We talk about where authors get stuck and how they succeed, whether it's about mindset stuff or craft issues or just how to navigate the changing landscape of publishing. This show covers everything you need to know about how to start and finish your own writing project. I first came across Janine Olette last year after I'd read an essay of hers at Brevity Magazine. It was called, What Substack Taught Me About Nimbleness, Improvisation, and the Absolute Necessity of Mistakes. Now, in this interview, we'll talk a lot more about Janine Substack, Writing in the Dark, and how she's been using it to connect to readers. But for now, I want you to listen for the voice behind that amazing title. It's a voice full of real wisdom, born from difficult life experience. It's informed by a deep engagement with the craft of writing. And it's also a voice that's open to the mystery and fallibility of human beings. Janine's memoir, The Part That Burns, was published in 2021. That book brings together fragments from a childhood that included emotional neglect, sexual abuse, and foster care. But it weaves those moments into a life that's deeply connected to the experience of motherhood. The magic of Janine's memoir comes from her choice of child narrator. It's an incredible feat of writing. In the interview, we talk about the challenge of writing about such difficult material and how she eventually discovered a voice that could tell the story she had to tell. Janine Olette runs Elephant Rock, a writing school she founded in 2012. She also teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota and with the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. Well, Janine, welcome. I, I love what you're doing, and I am, I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I thought we could start where I like to start all my interviews now, which is simply to ask, why this book, The Part That Burns? Why was this the book that you had to write? Well, first of all, I, I love the emphasis on the verb had. And I know, you know, that's that's the name of the podcast. So, and I I love that because this is definitely the book that I had to write. I don't know that anyone really wants to write a book about the kinds of experiences that, you know, the part that Burns explores and but it but it was the book that I had to write. And what I I think the short answer to your question is that because these experience, these childhood experiences were so formative and the impacts so long lasting, and because I've been a writer my whole life, what I found is that all of the writing that I was doing 
was writing around this book in some way and was affected by the experiences in this book. Yeah, and which is something I'm I'm actually really interested in, this idea of like writing around something instead of into it. Um, and why we do that and how it can hinder our practice. And, you know, especially if we don't know we're doing it. So ultimately, I had to reckon with the fact that the book, the book demanded to be written. And if I wanted to become the writer I sought to be, I needed to face up to this book that I had to write. So the book is beautiful. And as you just alluded to, it's also heartbreaking in parts. Mm-hmm. You describe a lot of difficult situations, but you do it with writing and with a narrator who is imagistic, precise, sometimes elliptical. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that narrator, that child narrator. I was always under the impression that narrators in memoir needed to have this kind of double consciousness. Mm-hmm. So even with a child narrator who might be limited by their perception, there's always this adult part that's shaping language or thoughts or whatever. But you you really surprise me in this book by how completely you compel me through the choice of language and where you kind of point the camera. Mm-hmm. And you talked a lot about the techniques that you use in an article that you wrote for the Essay Journal of Nonfiction Studies. And, and I'm going to recommend to listeners to check that out. I'll add it to the show notes too. But I wanted to ask you a bit about that. So at one point, you say that the defining feature of child narrators is not their limited vocabulary or their flawed grammar, but Mm -hmm. the uniquely developing analytical ability and incomplete understanding that they have. Can you tell me a bit more about that? I'm so glad you're asking about this because I'm actually going to be teaching this topic in Brooke Warner and Linda Joy Meyer's Magic of Memoir series next week. This idea, and it's not child narration specifically for them, it's narration, but um, I like that you talked about where you point the camera and then also, you know, the analytical ability of the child narrator, but that's at play in all narration. And so this is something I'm really interested in. So, you know, we hear about the reflective voice in memoir and, you know, I'm in a lot of like various writing groups and, you know, I'm very active in places where people are talking about writing a lot. And I hear this a lot, you know, well, it has to be, you know, the focus in memoir has to be like, what did you learn from it? And what did, you know, how did it change you? And how did you transform? And, and I, and I don't disagree with that, but I I think that it can um, be an incomplete. It's kind of like any aphorism, like show, don't tell, you know, but if you don't break it down to what does that really mean? So um, how, how do you understand it? And so I like to think about this from this perspective of like a trinity, that there's the writer that we are right now, like I'm the person who's tapping away at the keyboard, you know, and trying to like shape something out of experience. And I'm the one who's tasked with figuring out those, well, first of all, just finding the questions, what, what, what is this about and how, what, how did I transform, et cetera. And I think for most of us, that's a process. We don't go into the, the memoir already knowing that, you know, Rebecca Carroll talked about this on Monday night uh, in the memoir series I'm talking about, which is that, you know, she's talked about how essential a book proposal is for memoir and then how useless it is in the actual writing of the memoir that it, <laughs> it won't actually describe the book you're going to write. And I loved that. It was so honest because 
it shouldn't, you know, the, the writing of the book should absolutely unearth, you know, a whole new aboutness. And so anyway, so there's the writer, that's who we are right now, who's on this mission of discovery. And then there's the, but we know the most ultimately, you know, we are kind of the puppeteer of the process. And then there's the narrator and whether that narrator is a, is a child um, or an adult, the narrator is the one on the page telling the story. And that is a little bit different from the writer, you know, if you can feel that distinction, because the narrator, you only get so many words, you know, to land maybe 50, 60, 70,000 words. The, the writer has all the words, all the thoughts, all the, you know, consciousness. And then there's the actual protagonist, you know, and, and that protagonist knows the least, always, that protagonist has the most limited understanding of what's going on um, because they're the one on the page actually experiencing it. And so what what I've begun to think a lot about is that the more we're aware of those three levels and the distinctions and the very specific ways that that can be powerful, the, the richer the narrative can be because we're making intentional decisions about what to reveal and when to reveal it and how much to reveal. So, yeah. And I think with a child, the reason I think child narrators are so fascinating is because they force those questions to the, to the forefront. You can't really write a child narrator and not be thinking about that. Even if you don't, you know, have, have the vocabulary, you know, the same vocabulary that I'm using, or even if you haven't like parsed it out, you actually are making some of those decisions because that narrator is a child, so you know on some level that they are that they have limitations. You also talk about another really interesting and important topic as it relates to narrators and specifically child narrators, which is a concept uh, called defamiliarization. Mm. You ex- uh, you describe it as the child voice and perspective, which casts strange light on objects and experiences. Can you tell me more about? this concept of defamiliarization and also how, how can it help writers who are crafting child narrators? Mm -hmm. I'm like wild for defamiliarization. You know, I, when I teach, I, I talk about it a lot and how language it's, it's interesting as writers that language is our tool. It's, it's our only tool. And unlike, you know, dance or or music or visual art, the tools of those art forms are such that there's defamiliarization is already baked in, maybe not as quite as much so with music, because we are music is so ubiquitous, and we can listen to it easily all the time now. And so there is a level of defamiliarization, whereas with language, you know, we we're texting, we're reading on the internet and, you know, looking at TikTok and all of it is language. I think that when Wendell Berry, he talks about like our job is to make language capable of telling the truth again. I think that comes through defamiliarization. And so with child narrators, the world is unfamiliar. It's already an unfamiliar place. And, you know, I have children in my life, which I, which is helpful to me. My foster grandson right now is he had a, an undiagnosed hearing problem. It's not hearing loss. He needed tubes in his ears when he came to us at 20 months. And so he didn't have any language. He was totally pre-verbal. And watching him over the last year as he's 
you know, been able to acquire language and the way that he says things. I'm going to try to think of something like recent right now. Um, I'll just tell you like his first ever story. I like to play a game with all the little, little grandchildren in my life. You know, like it's like, you know, like a little pretend like I jump out one, two, three, <laughs> ah, and then they, ah, you know. And the first story he ever told at his preschool was Nana, Pop Pop, House, ah. Wow. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful little story. It's so complete. So this concept of defamiliarization in literature you write was first described by the Russian formalist Viktor Shklovsky, and he had an essay called Art as Device. I'll add that to the, uh, the show notes as well. Can you explain the term again? Part of it is just putting words together, sometimes in an order, you know, it's like putting the comma in a place that breaks that thought just so. It just It's just a little bit askew in a way that is it lends a certain strangeness that wakes us up. And that's the part I think is really important is the waking up, that we wake up and we say, oh. And I think what's important that I just want to emphasize here is this is not about like being writerly. It's It's kind of the opposite. It's not about writing in a way that is meant to show you, you know, I don't know, like, look how many words I know and how many strange words I can use. It's not that at all. I think it's about paying closer attention and listening harder, you know, and seeing things from an, a newer, more curious perspective. I think that's defamiliarization. wanted to ask you, I think you allude to this in the essay journal piece, but my sense is that it took you a while to kind of land on this particular narrator in your book. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you was about just some of the challenges that faced you while you were working on this book over a long period of time. Maybe could you walk us through what that journey looked like for you in terms of finding this voice? I mean, first of all, I avoided it most of my life. You know, I, I just on my Substack dug up a, a column that I wrote in 1996. This was the first ever column as my, I was new in my position as editor in chief of a local, a regional magazine called Minnesota Parent. And, you know, so I've been, I've been at this for a really long time and I just never talked about things that happened before I was 18. And if, you know, you've read the book, you you know that I was in foster care, you know, in high school. And, um, and I still had a lot of shame around these experiences. I didn't want anyone to know, you know, it would have been very embarrassing for me at that time. I, you know, I wanted to be like seen as, you know, everybody who was around me, you know, I had, you know, I think you could say like, I think the way we talk about it is class jumped and I, I just wanted to fit in and I wanted, you know, the less people knew the better. So, you know, getting to a point of, of not just being able to talk about these things more, um, but also wanting and needing to write this story, you know, that, that in itself was, it was quite a journey. But what I found is that even once I started wanting to write about it, it, it just, 
It just did not work. And I had, you know, I was an experienced enough writer to, to know, to know the difference and be like, what, this just isn't it. Like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want this out there with my name attached to it, not because I'm embarrassed of what it's about anymore, but because the writing is not, you know, reflective of what I think I'm capable of artistically. And I think that um, that child narrator, which is what you were specifically talking about, what was so helpful for me in discovering writing from her perspective was very much the limitations of what she understood. And so what it allowed me to do is to go in and do Annie Erno um, calls it flat writing. This is Annie Erno, the uh, French uh, writer, Nobel laureate. And you're, you're talking about using a version of her style, what she calls flat style, right? So it's a version of that. I feel like to go in and it's just about, it's just, she is just delivering in a fairly even non-emotional manner what happened without explanation, without, in most cases, without judgment. Like this is, you know, I, oh, this is my stepfather's doing this to me. I don't like it, you know, but it's better upstairs than downstairs kind of a thing. Um, and, and what that did, how that changed things is it, it freed me from, as the, you know, the writer, you know, in that trinity that I talked about of having to like carry, carry the burden of, of explanation, of contextualization. Like I felt like if I got the details right, the actual exterior details of the, of what happened from that child's perspective, not in her vocabulary, you know, it's in my very chosen vocabulary for her, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. That it would, the hope was that it would allow the reader to come to their own, you know, to feel what they felt about it and come to their own conclusions about what's going on. And I think there's something very powerful. um, That's another aspect of child narration that I think when wielded well can be very powerful is that it can be a quite a profound experience as readers to know without doubt that we have a much more accurate understanding of what's happening on the to the protagonist than the protagonist does, and which can happen also with adult narrators, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like that, you know. It's like, and I'm not saying that in the case of these scenes that the reader likes knowing more than this little girl, but I think it it can create compassion, you know, and it can evoke a certain um, an emotional experience that is organic rather than orchestrated by the narrator. Was there a version of this book at some point where you had added a lot of interior monologue? Was that a stage you had to go through in order to arrive at the present version of the book? Yeah. And that's what wasn't working. You know, it just wasn't working. And and I think that Toni Morrison has spoken really beautifully about this. And I've looked for this quote that I can't find, but where she she has spoken about when we, when we write about these really hard things and what we owe the reader to um, and how we can write about things that, you know, that, that the things that for a human being to experience are graphic and painful and, you know, and really ugly but we can write about them in a way that's very conscious of what the reader's experience of that will be and very protective of the reader. So we can we can tell the truth, but we can do it in a way that is 
not assaultive, you know, and that is artistic and that's not, it's not about sugarcoating. Yeah. It's about illuminating something, but doing it with care. So I think, you know, sometimes that interior, that interiority and that interior monologue doesn't always lend itself to that. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it helped me a lot to really limit the amount of that this narrator gets to do. And then there are sections in the book where where she's older in young adulthood and early motherhood, um, where there is more interiority. I think it's still, I still preferred to adhere, you know, closely to as flat, flat writing as much as possible. But, but there's a, the leash gets let out a little bit as she gets older. So I thought we could switch gears and talk about uh, Substack, which you mentioned earlier. And Substack, for listeners who may not be familiar with it, of course, is an online publication and design application which supports writers sending out uh, subscription newsletters. I feel like over the past year, as social media has gotten really fragmented especially with uh, the implosion of Twitter, that a lot of writers have moved over to Substack. Is that something that you're noticing as well? Absolutely noticing it. And I think there was a huge, well, Substack made a really big push when Elon Musk bought Twitter to really recruit everyone from Twitter, you know, and there was this whole idea of like, own your content and, you know, be safe from that kind of hostile takeover type situation. And, um, and I think that they've also really actively recruited some high profile writers and are still doing that, you know, um, bringing people over. So it's exciting. I mean, it's also a little overwhelming. (laughs) It's, there's just so much there and so many writers there, but, but it's exciting and, and it does feel different than like the hubbub of social media. You wrote a piece last year for Brevity Magazine called What Substack Taught Me About Nimbleness, Improvisation, and the Absolute Necessity of Mistakes. Great title. Can you walk me through that a bit? Why nimbleness, improvisation, and making mistakes? Well, so... I guess you could call me a recovering perfectionist, you know? <laughs> me too. And yeah, good. Okay. So you you know that feeling. And I, I I've gotten to a point in my life and my career where if I have to have it, like, because I'm from the old days of magazines, if it has to be camera ready before I can ever hit go, then I won't ever do anything. Because it's just, it's not the life I have right now. I have six adult children, my husband and I, and five grandchildren. I work full-time for the University of Minnesota and am teaching outside of that. And so if I made it into a thing where it has to be perfect and all the graphics have to be right and I have to have the, like, whatever subscription um, tiers figured out with then I would I would never go. So I have to tell myself it's okay. I can I can just do it and I can change it and it can grow and it can evolve. And I if I make a mistake, I can fix it. Because and I, what I tell writers too is like it's we're not doing brain surgery here. There no one's life is at stake. It's not. Like we can just 
try things and then try again. And if we can, you know, really do our work with that to really, really try to embrace that. Like it, I actually think the work will be more exciting. It will end up better because we'll be less like tight and buttoned up and afraid of, you know, like I always think too, like we can, I can write a good sentence. You know, I could sit and dial that in over and over again, but that's actually not what I'm interested in. I'm I'm interested in being able to write a new kind of sentence, you know, that I haven't written before and be able to step back and say, wow. Yeah. So that's how I tried to approach the substack. I'm glad you used that word stakes a few moments ago, because what occurs to me is that what you're doing here is lowering stakes. Like you'll write to raise them later to find your way. I like that a lot. Yeah, lowering the threshold of entry in a way, you know, just and then and then and then because another phrase I really, really like and I try to practice is investment without attachment. So like it's not about like, I don't care, I can just do like a, you know, crappy substack and you know, what does it matter? It's not that. It's like I'm really invested. Like I do want it to be really good. And it's okay if if I realize that I have to back up a little bit and, you know, reframe something or redo something that it's, it's okay. It, it really is okay to fail better. Yeah. I want to ask you a bit about your approach to teaching writing and writing advice, since you've talked about that being a big part of your Substack newsletter. Uh, you published an essay there called 11 Urgent and Possibly Helpful Things I Learned About Writing from Reading Thousands of Manuscripts. T- tell me the backstory of, of what prompted you to write that piece. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of things about it. First of all, that piece really helped put my substack, really helped launch it because um, Allison K. Williams somehow saw it. I'm not actually sure. I need to ask her how it came to her attention. Like it happened overnight. Wow. And so that really helped um, spotlight my Substack. And she changed the headline for the Brevity blog to like something like 11 definitely helpful things. <laughs> um, so, but what had happened is that I had been, I told you I do, I teach retreats, and I had been on a manuscript re- revision retreat in Mexico. It was a week long retreat, it was very intensive. So I was, I had spent, not just that seven days, which was very intense, but the couple of months leading up to it, very much immersed in these 12 or so manuscripts. And during the course of you know those seven days and on the plane home, I was thinking about all of the all of the thematic things that were just, if I could just isolate them, you know, it's like these are the things that across these manuscripts that we kept kind of coming back to and all developed, like, you know, it was like, it was so powerful when you're with a group like that and see that collective consciousness forming and the shared vocabulary concretizing. And I thought I need to write all this down before it slips away. So I did it. I just came home and I just kind of pounded that out. Um, I thought, well, I'll just make a Substack post out of this, you know, because zero waste writing, you know, right? Like if I'm going to do it, then also, oh yeah, I can use that for my post. It's a really good example of the whole nimbleness too, because I didn't sweat over it. I just wrote it and it was fast. I think I, you know, wrote it in less than a couple of hours. Yeah. So it was very clear and, um, powerful illustration of of what I mean really by the whole nimbleness thing. 
you know, I, I approached it lightly, but it was a topic that I really care a lot about and wanted, you know, there was passion in it. Oh, I, I think I have something to share here and I really want to capture it while it's fresh. I want to ask you about a couple of the tips in that Substack specifically. Uh, one of the tips is what you call internal versus external, or probably interiority versus exteriority, which we talked mm -hmm. about at length already in the first part of this interview. Tell me more about what you're seeing writers do to miss the boat here, and what can they do to fix this issue? Well, the number one thing I think that a writer can do to fix the issue is become fully confidently aware of what is internal and what's external. And I, I know that interiority and exteriority, like we could use those kind of synonymously, but I think it might be true that people um, almost understand, like there's something about internal and external that's more concrete because it's not writerly. It's not, you know, it's not taken from like the literary vocabulary. And it's just like, there's things that are outside of ourselves. And then there's what's inside of us, our thoughts and feelings. And even when we talk about sensory writing, like, you know, writing through the senses, I have begun to realize that when I teach, I, I use taste and smell as gray areas when it comes to the, the senses and even touch can be because as soon as it starts to come in, like really the closer it gets to our body, you know, and then in with taste, it's actually in the body and smell really can be too, depending on how you write it. We're, we're starting to get interior or really open the door to the possibility that this is internal and not external. So I think that the first thing that a writer can do is become very sure that they do know the difference. And I'll give you an example from that retreat. I was teaching the internal because it really was, it was really a a thing in the manuscripts. And I wanted to, so I gave people a prompt that they were to write a, a just a very short scene and it was built around a poem. And I don't remember which poem we were looking at now, but the poets are really, really good at exteriority. So it's, it's easy to teach with poetry. So let's pretend it was Mary Oliver's The Summer Day, you know, where she's looking at the grasshopper in her hand. And that's a totally external observation. So I had, I gave the writers a prompt like that. And one of the writers came back and she, her snippet that she had written was about waking up and I get up and I think about this and I walk to the refrigerator and I drink some orange juice and it's cold and like that kind of thing. Um, except it was even more interior. And, and I remember it was such a great opportunity to be like, okay, that that's, you know, let's, let's break this down. Let's see which parts of this are, are external and which are internal. And it was like, probably, I don't know, I'm making this up, but like maybe 85% internal. And it was very eye opening for her. So, wow, you know, like, okay, I get it now. Like I, I see this, this dividing line between what is outside of myself and what's inside of myself. The exterior world I share that, like I say in the Substack piece, we are, we, it's the world we share. You recognize it. I recognize it. And, and Marie Howe says this, she says, when we look hard enough at the exterior world, it opens like a window. 
we avoid doing it because it hurts us. It bores us. It, we, it, you know, and Buddhism tells us this, you know, it's, it's about right. The present moment, like looking at what's actually in front of us is we will do anything. We'll avoid it at all cost. But in our writing, if we can slow down and look at those exterior details, we can find that so often they'll carry so much of the work for us and, 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 and they'll do it more effectively and, you know, more beautifully than any amount of, of interior reflection could do. Not that we should never use that, but I think it's a powerful spice. I guess I should have asked this first, but what are you finding is the problem with the sort of interior writing that your students were doing? Well, first of all, I mean this in the kindest possible way, but it can just be very boring, you know, to be in someone's head, you know, to be trapped in someone else's thought process is not necessarily a, an engaging place to be. And that's why in a very, you know, that's the reason for the not always helpful aphorism show, don't tell. It's like, show me, bring me into this world, make it real. And that's that's true of nonfiction. Uh, Rebecca Carroll, again, hearkening back to the Monday night session that I attended, said, and I, I wholly agree in memoir writing, particularly, the elements of fiction are much more important than anything else. We're we we're we're setting out to give someone an experience and make them feel something, and that's very hard to do by just sharing your thought process. In that eleven urgent things post, you also ask writers to think about aboutness. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is what do you mean by this tip to pay attention to aboutness? So I think. The reason I'm hesitating is because in the essay, uh, child narrator essay that you refer to at the start of the show, my editor there, Heidi Serwick, um, does a lot of lyric work and non-narrative work. And so I, again, I always want to say like there's exceptions, right? That said, I think there is still an aboutness operating in, in all or most of the most powerful writing. And it's the writer's job to find it, like, and to know what it is and whether that aboutness is going to assert itself entirely through implication, which can be such a beautiful way to experience, you know, a piece of writing or through the writer, you know, coming right out and and really looking me in the eye and saying, this is what this is about, which is, you see, can work so beautifully too. So it's not about like the, the strategy or the device when Rebecca Carroll said she was writing her memoir, which was Surviving the White Gaze, that's her book, growing up a Black girl, adopted daughter in an all-white, not just all-white family, but all-white town, a very tiny, isolated town where she was the only Black person. But it took her the whole, like she had written an entire draft of that book before she realized and using like a lot of like diary and journal, like she was a, she said, a very avid, devoted uh, diarist and journal keeper. And only after writing the entire first draft of it, did she come to realize through engaging with that draft and looking at why it wasn't working, that it was really about the white gaze. And then of course she had to start all over. And so the, so what I'm saying is that it's, I think we discover aboutness. And then once we know what the work is about, we have to write toward that. So, and, and it's natural. If you're in doing a workshop, right? A lot of the work, it's in progress. It's work in progress. And so the writer is 
in the midst of that, you know, that journey of discovery toward what is this about? But I think it's important that they be actively engaging and understanding that they might not know yet that you set out to write a story about blank, you know, but it turns out to be about blank, which is something else entirely. (laughs) And then the work of revision starts. And then the work of revision starts. You know, if I I work with book clients and only once you've actually written the book, can you start to realize everything you have to do all the, even if even if you've written a serviceable draft and it's not like you have to start all over you know there's so much work on the front end that you're going to have to do to earn and establish that whatever it is that you've finally realized at the end you know now you have to go back and do all of the hard work of getting us there getting the reader there because because we're not you know, again, that trinity of narrators, the writer experienced that journey of the writing. We did not, you know, we're just reading what's on the page, which is just an artifact of that process. So Janine, where can people find you online? Well, I have a website, janineolette.com and on Substack at Writing in the Dark. Those are my main places. Janine, I want to thank you so much. This was a fabulous conversation. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for this podcast. And yeah, it's just, it's such a great question. So it was really fun to be here. You've been listening to my interview with Janine Olet. I'm Paul Zekshevsky. If you've enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in Apple Podcasts. I'm always grateful for reviews and for sharing the show with friends. To get show notes and a transcript delivered to your inbox, please subscribe to my newsletter, The Book I Want to Write. It's at bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. Every week, I also publish short essays about writing mindset, developments in publishing, and more. If you're working on your own book you have to write, or you want to get started, maybe I can help. Find out more about me and my book coaching at bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. That's bookiwanttowrite.substack.com. And thanks for listening.